everybody. Hello, this is Heather Gold, and this is Tamilvision, episode 103. How fucking cool is that? I'm here looking out at the Ferry Building and the beautiful Salesforce offices. Thank you, Salesforce, with the lovely Kevin Marks. Hi there. Usual co- and our other co-host, uh, who's with us on the line, Deb Schultz. Hello, all. And our special guest this week is none other than Keo Stark. Hello. And Keo, is that your the name you were born with? It is, yeah. Keo, awesome. I believe you were requested by our our crowd. Like I believe our that's listeners so exciting. wanted you. You were a demanded guest. Wow, I'm flattered. We're psyched to have you. I know. So you Keo, first we'll explain Tumblevision. Uh, what the fuck is tumbling? Tumbling is an act, uh, and Tumblr is a person, and a person who tumbles helps people engage, uh, especially in a non-hierarchical way. So when you're trying to figure out, uh, Tumblevision is a kind of salon-style show where we talk about living in a networked world, and we go into stuff in business, technology, and art, uh, especially when we're trying to connect people and have engagement happen. Um, we do it in different realms. I'm a performer and an artist, uh, and Kevin's a technologist and Deb works in business. Now we all are kind of mixed people and kind of between worlds. I've, we've all been involved with the web since early days, and we're all relatively creative and into big ideas. So that's true. But we're all interested in ways in which people work kind of between worlds uh, and help reflect people's attention back to them. A Tumblr is somebody who was hired traditionally to get people to dance at a wedding. Mm-hmm. If you saw Dirty Dancing, you saw Tumbling, right? People who were there to be entertained at a resort, but also were in the show. The show wasn't merely put on for them. So that's Tumbling, and we bring a variety of different people to you who are doing really interesting things in understanding or helping do things in a more networked way. Uh, so we're in a real transition time in the economy and the culture where hierarchies are kind of shifting or breaking, kind of siloed culture isn't as effective as it once was. Uh, there's lots of larger participatory stuff. So how do you make participatory stuff work? <laughs> Even though everyone wants to use these catchphrases, community, engagement, blah, 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 they actually have to do something to make it happen, which doesn't always work out well for people who just want to use the words. So Keo, you are um, a professor at ITP and a novelist. ITP's Interactive Technology Program at NYU. And you teach kind of relational, social dynamics and relational technology, if that's an accurate yeah. way to put it. Mm-hmm. And how would you describe relational technology? Um, it's basically the way that people relate to each other through technology and the way they relate to technology. So it's sort of the update on what Sherry Turkle sort of did. Yeah, I mean, we we read a lot of Sherry Turkle in my classes. Um, it's, um, It's definitely about a kind of intimacy with technology and intimacy through technology and, you know, fundamental ways of connecting. Um, so I, te- I actually teach three different classes. One is about how strangers interact. One is specifically about intimacy and technology. And the other one is about technological authenticity and relationship to devices and kind of how we make devices that feel like they're animate. Very cool. Well, uh, I'm super interested in that. I know my particular thing is um, public intimacy and emotional stuff as a performer. 
Um, so lots to ask you. Just for reference for everybody, if you don't, if you're listening, you don't know who Sherry Turkle is. She's a is she still a professor at MIT? She yes. was a professor at MIT. She has a recent book out that's gotten some attention called Alone Together, but she's kind of best known in the technology world as an early psychologist who worked in human-computer interface conversations and sort of the psychology of virtual worlds. If I, if I, correct me if I got that wrong, anything wrong here. Uh, no, that sounds right. I mean, she she was also part of the team that made, like, I forget the name of it, actually, the the little seal that was very responsive and that they gave to old people in nursing homes to, mm. to make them feel warm and fuzzy um, and a lot of projects like that. And I feel like she was early on seen as a sort of advocate or way of helping make this stuff work. And her most recent book is more of a, this stuff sucks. Yeah, I'm, I, she, she sort of had a, you know, swing towards thinking that we're on our devices too much and we're not connecting with each other and that having these device intermediaries is a bad thing and people don't have limits on their attention to technology. And um, I'm not sure I buy it, but... um, You're not sure you buy it as an idea or you're not sure you buy that she believes it? No, I'm not sure that I buy that her original ideas were wrong. Um, So I, I saw a talk recently that she did about it and... Um, she she was talking a lot about her her daughter and communicating with her daughter and um, I just I think that the way we communicate through technology unless we're really autistic about it is an added layer on our communication um, and no offense to anyone who's autistic sorry um, right well it, I, I I often uh, have to actually call out people who are not just or Asperger's I guess high in the spectrum because um, I teach these workshops on how to tumble and how to unpresent how to run a large conversation and a lot of it has to do with reading these cues mm-hmm. and emotional affect and then I'm interested in seeing technology get smarter about how to express this stuff and read this stuff and yeah. I have had people in talks and workshops who are uh, Asperger's and so it's really a different thing to work with somebody who's Literally, yeah. it's everything explained, although it can be kind of helpful in a sense because you have to make everything implicit explicit, so it's quite a learning process. Right, and I, I mean, a lot of the studies from which we've learned about how all of this happens are are based on comparing neurotypical people to autistic and Asperger's people. Um, Non-neurotypical. There's got to be another nice phrase for that. Neurotypical that is. is what people with uh, Asperger's syndrome call the rest of us. Call yes. us. yes. The, the vanilla versions. Right. And, yeah. and just as a shout out, my nephew who is on the learning disabled spectrum and turned 11 today, it's his birthday. Uh, you know, may, it made me think about, I think we make a lot of assumptions, and this relates to probably the work you do, Keo, that, that, that Asperger's don't, you know, aren't relational and as emotional. Because when I watch kids on the spectrum, obviously highly functioning, mm-hmm. he's incredibly emotional. He just, he's just, he pivots to the extreme and then yeah. shuts it off really quickly. So I wonder if we, if we, you know, a la Heather, what you try to teach people within unpresenting, if we're somehow taught, you know, to unemote ourselves as humans as we get older, you know. 
Oh, it's an, to yeah. me, there's no question. I mean, anybody yeah, who teaches any kind of performance knows. I mean, watch a two-year-old. It, they're pretty it, naturally expressive. Right. So it's interesting to watch kids on the learning spec- disabled spectrum because I actually think they have, just have no filters and they can be very emotional. Definitely. So um, we like to sometimes at the top of the show hit uh, current events, if they're relevant. We have a couple things that have been going on. The Facebook IPO sort of rolling out. The prices come down, and uh, there's sort of a kerfuffle about Mark Zuckerberg wearing a hoodie. Apparently the <laughs> analysts are commenting. on Basically everything in the world has become more gossipy, all media, and now analysts' uh, meetings are becoming gossipy, which is pretty fascinating. Well, they're boring, so they have to gossip about something. This can be connected to the value of the company is interesting. And apparently it's not very much – there's less institutional demand than people thought. So, I, I don't, Kevin, do you think that if um, it doesn't seem so hot, the Facebook IPO, that it's going to hurt the general investment market or, or even advertising market for the startups um, scene? I th- well, I think there's no. I think they're going to they're going to, the IPA is going to do fine, and it'll you know jiggle around like all these things do, and everyone will go ah, and, and then ignore it for a bit, and they'll and they'll have stock. I think the, I think what Zuckerberg's doing is actually very clever. What he's doing is he's playing to the stereotype from the social uh-huh. network movie, um, of I'm the smartest guy in the room and I, and I look fucking weird, um, which is what's something they've you know they basically owned that that movie, and there's a whole bunch of other shit that came out of that which is the, the programming nonsense which is yeah. still been rumbling along this week there was a great article by Gina Trapani and C- on um, and CNN CNN basically that. saying that uh, you know they've done us a favor companies like Clout which the show is we are not fans of the Clout of any kind of official influence idea anyway that that, that they advertise for programmers at, to try to hire people at Stanford and they said bro down and crush code and there's been a few of these, and there's quite a few, you know, there's regular little sexist things that pop out. And Gina's take on this was, hey, this helps you filter what companies are kind of losers you don't want to work with and aren't able to create a diverse environment, um, and they'll fail because of it. Uh, then, of course, and it, what's interesting is she wrote this piece, the comments went incredibly sexist and completely... Uh, there's no one tumbling the comments. I mean, this is a this is a common thing in mainstream media. I mean, I don't know, Keo, if this is first anything you work on, but we talk a lot about sort of we try to focus. On, it's a common problem online, right? How do we have this space where people are going to really have a conversation where, that's going to work? And we're a fan of having a person who's there, who's mm-hmm. really hosting the way you'd host live in a room, and the tools are still pretty weak for it. Um, I, is that the kind of environment you guys might? talk about because there's it is i guess a stranger usually stranger to stranger communication yeah absolutely i mean you know one of the things that happens in the classes uh we we kind of go through figuring out you know what are the things that we do decently in in physical space in terms of social perception and reading each other and interaction and thinking about the fact that most of those are missing from any online communication um, or any digital communication and so as we're building new systems how do we build in ways to replace or or replicate or substitute for those kinds of perception yeah what what are some examples you've seen that work Uh, I've barely seen any yet but um, I've talked to a bunch of startups that were trying to do like 
text-based stranger conversations and all kinds of stuff like that. And it really kept coming down to, as you said, you need a host. You need somebody in here who's particularly with, with anything that's, um, you know, there's no um, threading of comments or anything. You need somebody in there who's saying, oh, yeah, so-and-so was just talking about that and to draw people into conversation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just as someone, that's my job in life. Uh, yeah. It's really obvious to me. It should be there. It's not a paid thing online anywhere, right? Basically, writers, bloggers who have comments, we're talking about it with Alexis Madrigal about Ta-Nehisi Coates, who we think has a, does a beautiful job of this. They're not paid extra to do that. Right. So it's rarely done, but it makes all the difference. Also, I think as a writer, to the level of what you're getting back. I mean, in the, yeah. in the case of Gina's piece, it's ironic because the response to her article just proves the point of her article, <laughs> yes. essentially. Right. Um, so you could think these kinds of offensive or bullyish environments are just examples of untumbled space. There's no <laughs> sense that there's any there there, any way in which people will know or really see each other, have accountability. Yeah. I guess I'm thinking about this because of the Mitt Romney flap today, which I've been a little bit yep. obsessed with. Yeah. What happened today? I was offline and buried. Yeah, I mean, so the two things that happened were Obama came out to support uh, saying that he supported gay marriages. Right. In a very, you know, carefully rolled out way. And then the next day, the Washington Post today runs a really pretty deep investigative piece about a high school intense gay bullying incident, anti-gay bullying incident with Romney, where Uh he led a group of five guys and kind of pin this guy down on the ground and forcibly cut his hair and the guy was crying and oh. pretty terrified and this guy ended up dying very young and a very peripatetic life and didn't you know I think it seemed like it really haunted him Romney claims to not remember it but also in case he did remember it said it wasn't possibly homophobic uh, but that, but that's just that sense of an environment or a group. Keo, do you spend time studying those kinds of environments offline as well or just or just online? Um, no, I, I'm definitely interested in how those things work offline and what I feel like is learning about how they work offline where we have a lot of, um, of information. You know, people, or people from urban studies have been thinking about this for a long time. People in psychology and anthropology have been looking at this for a long time. So we have all this information about how people relate to each other um, in person and the idea is to extract from that what we can learn that we can translate into in meaningful ways uh, into ad hoc public spaces that are that are online or between our phones. And did you do? Um, I guess you studied. Anth- I'm going to guess anthropology. Um, I studied anthropology in college, and then I went to the American Studies program at Yale and dropped out. Um, ah, that- Amstud. Who were you studying with? Uh, Michael Denning and Hazel Carby and um, uh, what's the labor historian who just died? uh, David Montgomery. Um, It was a long time ago. I don't actually remember everyone I studied with, to be honest. All right. No, but it's a really good point that, you know, generationally for years we've studied how people relate in the real world, Mm -hmm. right? There's entire, you know, um, buildings built for it in universities <laughs> across the globe. And yeah. yet we make all these assumptions about online. 
Yeah. You know, as if it can just translate. And I think that's what we hear talk about all the time, that this is just, it's not even kindergarten. We're like a, yeah. nur- we're like a nursery school here when it mm-hmm. comes to understanding how to build spaces that work online. You know? I, yeah. I think, I mean, tell me what you think of this, Keo, but I think is because it's such a deliberate and quantitative thing, so everything's coded, it just is going to make us more aware of what we already do without the technology. That's interesting. I, yeah, I mean, I guess you're right. I, I, the way that I look at it is that, like, everything that fails makes us more aware. Yeah, of, yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. And it's slow. It's slow and deliberate in a way that we're doing so much stuff in real time with each other. We don't even right. know. I mean, I've noticed because I've started teaching it because I've been doing it for so long. Mm-hmm. And now that people ask me to explain it, the act of helping someone do something makes me kind of notice, oh, I'm doing these 12 things and they always work this way and you could do this and it'll work. Right. Um, well, so you have to break it down. You have to unpack it. You have to see it. Yeah, and often it's the things that fail or that it's just slower or that it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of, a, uh, what's the word? Like the opposite of elegant. Like it's kind of a mess. <laughs> clunky. It's clunky. It's clunky. I'm going to yeah. tell you that I think this is a joke. On the other hand, you know, <laughs> that's how we talk about feelings and affect with each other online. That's what right. it feels like to me. Well, that's about, that's what we were saying about the you know the the smileys and the right. We're still the, in 1997. Links, yes. Yeah, I did a whole yeah. talk at WordCamp about uh, just emotionally that it's not that we haven't passed 96 essentially, except with video to me. Well, with, with photos too. You can you can now send a reaction shot to people. Do you? You people do. Do you see that, Keo? No. In what context? I've, I've, I mean, I've, I've seen reaction videos. I've, well, I see, this, see this on. I see this on Facebook. Well, the place that I see it most is on. Um, I forgot the name of the thing now. Daily Booth, because they made it really easy. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can. So there, you post a photo, and people can post reaction photos to it. So that, that that's that, the whole point. That, of was, Daily the, Booth. that was the grammar of it. But I I've see. seen it used on. I've seen it on um, Facebook as well, where people respond of a, a, a sort of surprised face of, the, of their own face. But they also post you know, cliched ones too. That's much more mm-hmm. common. But people, I've started to see people do the "here's me looking surprised" version of, of things. Right. Well, like Heather was saying, it's so funny that that that's so slow. You know, right. I mean, it, because I, because we've created this we, the royal we, everything online lately, and I guess this is my frustration, um, is so outward focused. There's no, hmm. and, and to use an overly cliched word. Well, what made you notice there's that, no, Deb? There's no listening. <laughs> what made me notice that? Oh, I don't know, the last five years. I mean, if, and, and also, it was really interesting to me because I, um, I love having conversations with people who are totally not in our industry and don't use our tools um, because it forces you to unpack it, like you said, right? And, you know, this woman was going, well, if everyone's online posting and tweeting and blogging and po- who, who's reading and listening and reacting? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was so elegantly simplistic and as opposed to clunky, her question. And I was like, well, you're right. We've created this tower of Babel to a certain degree, to a certain extent. So, Kevin, I'd love to see if there were more people doing that because I don't even think people are even thinking about the reaction to their stuff if it's not numerically hierarchical, a la cloud or other things. Wow, I must be important because 10,000 people have are following me but there's nothing about a reaction 
there's no mirror, you know, up there. Hmm. Right? I mean, it's interesting to think that in order for someone to post a reaction shot, there has to be an understanding that there's a two-way conversation happening. Keo, do you feel people online feel like they're just talking to themselves or do they feel like it's more than one way? I think it really depends on the, the, the community that they're in or the context. But I was just thinking when you guys were talking, you know, even in this context, people are, are saying things in the IRC chat right. about listening. And I'm sitting here listening and you have no way of knowing that. Mm. Unless I'm saying, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. no, no, yes. that's a, yeah. that's one of my number one things that I really want to work with people to, to do work on because uh, one of the things that uh, so one of the things I do when I'm presenting is basically just try to get people to undo a lot of the things they've learned about speech giving about that they think are going to make them listen to and mm. run basically have a conversation and one of the things that relaxes people the most live in a room with other people is feeling listened to. Yeah, but if you have no indicator that you're being that anyone's there, <laughs> you're being listened to, it's stressful. So people, yeah. that's why I think people over push out. Yeah, they and want- the bar is so low, Heather. It's like you know when you go and listen and listen to someone speaking, or if, God, I can't think of an example of an app where being acknowledged is built in, or a speaker, you know, turns to you and says. Oh, yeah, and what's your name? You know, it's so rare. You know, that's the weird thing. You know, yeah. and the bar is so low. Have you, what have you, have you seen anything, Keo, uh, that shows? I mean, the, the only example that I've had in some of the workshops I've done on this, Creating Space for Emotional Moment, uh, I did a couple with Paige Saez, and one of the participants ex- uh, suggested, like, and I don't know which applications do this off, off the top of my head, so I can't remember whether it's iChat or Skype, that sometimes there's some text or there's an indicator that the other person is in the process of typing. Yeah, Skype chat does that. Yeah. Um, I, I think uh, I did it first, and I think Google Talk does it too, yeah. Yeah, and I, I find that very, very useful. Because, do you have a, a term for that? Um, no, but I could make one up. Yeah, yeah. do it. Oh, do it. <laughs> okay, um... So I mean, you can take your time. You have to do it. Just yeah, minute, but you can be like the person who is the. <laughs> yeah, the name is I the... like naming things. I that's what I get paid to do, actually. Cool. Aha. Uh-huh. Then we really tumbled. You were you're, yes. ta- you're a taxonomist of interaction. Yes. Mm. Those those three little dots make such a big difference, don't they? Yeah. It's amazing. Well, I've noticed people. Some people um, do the, do this with texting, where they will literally send it a word at a time. Um. My son does this all the time. It drives me mad, but it's his it, it's his way of trying to ha- keep the conversation going. So he will he will be one word, one word, one word, one word. So the thing scrolls right. past. Right. Well, I can't stand it when people type like a whole paragraph, because, <laughs> oh, especially yeah. if you can't see the little. I think it's like the waiting signal or something. The the little dot. Mm. Um, it is. Yeah, it's like you know because you can't it, it because it's asynchronous slightly. You know, yes. you have to know that it's a—it's like a presence signal um, that they're still there and they're still in the conversation with you. They haven't like gotten up to go pee. Right. Well, that's yeah, because there's there's the sort of lower frequency one of that, which is—is is their thingy still green or has it gone orange? Um, yeah. Has their little light gone dimmed away into a traffic light? But the, the, yeah, this is a sort of queuing. Well, do, do people play with that? Do people like type something then delete it and type something and delete it so they sh- so they 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 show through like that? Uh, I see people doing that when I'm talking to them, and I'm like, "What? Spit it out!" You know. 
That's the New Yorker in you. But that's, yeah. that's I mean, the, you know, part of the, 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 one of the nice things about chat is that it works better for the introverted because it gives you a chance to edit what you say before you say it. And yeah. it gives you a little chance to, to think about it. Yeah. And that uh, is what, you know, what got me out of being unable to talk in public and into doing daft things like this show. Daft things like this show. <laughs> it, it was, was being able to have that little bit of extra time to respond, which is the... Yeah. <laughs> we decided to show the couple of Jewish women who <laughs> not at, both talk at the same time. Yeah, I had to work up to this. It took, it took, it took years of IRC to get <laughs> well, to this Well, it's helping us to maybe listen better, I hope. So, um, so Kia, what made you interested in this in the first place? Like, how does this start? You were in MRN studies, doing a PhD, right. because you wanted to study what particularly, or you didn't know? Um, well, I went straight out of college, which was sort of dumb, but I just was like, I'm not done going to school. Um, so I was studying kind of urban studies, and I got really interested in underground economies, and um, none of which has to do with strangers, but um, all through both college and graduate school, I did a lot of projects that were ethnographic where I was interviewing people hmm. um, and I had a real taste for talking to strangers so um, at, a, at a certain point like at some age I got a little self-reflective uh, as one does when one grows up and I was like why am I doing this why do I love doing this um, and so that was when I really started to to read about it and think about it and the class came about at ITP because you know, I was sort of a friend of the program and I was, I sat in on a lot of thesis presentations and I was a guest lecturer and I kept seeing all these projects that were trying to connect people. And I kept thinking, you know, if the students like had any idea what these relationships are actually made of, they could make really cool stuff, but they're just, they're starting from the technology instead of starting from the relationship. Um, and I was talking to to Clay, who's an old friend, Clay Shirky, about that, and and he was like, "Okay, you know, send me a syllabus." <laughs> so nice. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of the premises some of us are doing. I think that that's not just true of the students. I think that's true of every startup. Yeah, I, I yeah. don't think I could name you almost a startup that decided to start about the relationship between people other than Pair, maybe, maybe, maybe Path. Yeah. But even those are still executed. They look just kind of like miniature versions of what we have of an existing social network, which are built yeah. sort of around a business model, not around a relationship between people. Yeah. Um, does it, so what's the difference been with students now that you teach them? Like, um, the, the projects are becoming more and more interesting. Um, you know, I, I don't, I usually don't do what are called production classes, which means we're, we're reading and they're doing sort of interventions in public space, but uh, a lot of them are just field experiments where they have to go do kind of uh, choreographed and then less choreographed interactions with strangers to kind of get them to warm up to it and to learn how to observe what's happening and observe their own experience. Um, this past semester, I did have some students make these um, very cool looking uh, columns that they put in Washington Square Park at different ends of the park. And it, you could talk to somebody at the other end of the park through it. And they had all kinds of people come up and have 
you know, some just like, hey, where are you? And that was it. And some really in-depth conversations with some stranger on the other side of the park. And they would get into like all kinds of things about their lives. And then they would just, the interesting thing to me was they never tried to find each other. They just had this conversation and walked away. That's really cool. You should do that. I would, that's really interesting to do it. You know, it'd be really neat. Like that's New York in a really urban environment, right? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be interesting to do it? I wonder if it would be, do you think it would be different if you did it in a suburban mall or, you know, or I don't know, a small town or something? Absolutely. Um, And I would love to see them try that. I mean, they they tried it in other locations besides the park to see. Part of of this is that, like, depending on the context, um, Mm -hmm. the project needs a different kind of invitation. Like, the park is a strolling place. They didn't need that much invitation. It was a curiosity. People came and looked at it, and they used it. But if you're putting stuff in a place that people are busy and they have a mission and they're walking uh, or their attention is captivated by pretty clothes and store windows, you know, they're not even going to notice this thing. Uh, And it would have to have like a very elaborate invitation, which would make using it like overly self-conscious, I think. Yeah. What a great idea, though. Yeah, it was really fun. And that no one wanted to meet each other. Fascinating. I couldn't believe it because the first thing I would have done if I me had come across this was like, well, where are you? Well, let's just, where, you know, meet me on the bench. Like, this is interesting. And I think this is the thing, like we were talking about, Kevin was mentioning that, that talking to people uh, in a slightly asynchronous way made him more comfortable because he could think about what he was doing. Mm. I think that there's a, balance with technology and communication that you need to strike between anonymity and accountability. Um, Mm -hmm. So part of what was comfortable to these people about having these conversations is they couldn't see the other person's face. Um, But they were in a public space and other people were listening to them so they couldn't like turn it into trolling. Um, Yeah, you know what's really interesting under the tunnel concept is what would it be like if since, you know, I, we, the the tunnel crew here are always thinking about the the tumblers or the invisible skill set of the internet right now and it would be great if there were more tools, sites, places that were designed to help tumblers do stuff. Mm. Wondering if you did the experiment again but had someone as the tumbler. Mm-hmm that might be sort of the shuttler between the columns. Right. And imagine if person in column at the first column heard the conversation that was going on there and said, wow, do, and walked over to the, even like, not the second one because they're talking to each other, but the third column and said, hey, do you guys know that columns one and two are talking about dogs and you guys have dogs and like dogs? It would be really interesting to see mm. how these yeah. small conversations would end up forming some sort of temporary connection or you know if I wanted to get broad like a sense of purpose together you know right. and what that role I don't know I'm just thinking out loud because I'm always trying to figure out ways to explore this tumult concept and that's yeah. just cool I think that would work in a kind of defined space where where there were lots of conversations going on and the right. tumbler could be more aware of mm-hmm. people's interests either through technology or through conversation or both but in the park it's it was so kind of part of the passing scene that, um, I mean, the students were standing near the columns and they were, I would say, tumbling to a certain extent because sometimes people would walk up to it and like right. be confused or or not just take the leap and they would walk up and say, oh, you can talk to somebody and, you know, there's someone on the other end of the line. And um, 
so that there's certainly a little bit of that even in that project. Oh yeah, there had to be, otherwise it wouldn't have gotten off the ground. Yeah. As well. Yeah. Right? Well, the thing, the thing is, people do find sort of communication channels through through anything that that, that they're given, don't they? Mm-hmm. I, the, the one that that comes to mind was there was um, looking back, this is, must be in mid nineties. Um, there was a, a, a game you played in bars that was like a quiz game. Um, I can't remember the name of it. Like a sport, the sports thing in the states, they had like you know. It was no, no, like but this was this was a network quiz game. So you would play yeah, against yeah, yeah. you get these little crappy plastic terminals that were like speaking spells, and you would yes, I remember those. Come on the screen, and you would you could um, play against the other people in the bar, and then your bar was playing against the other bars, and so on. Um, and the only communication method you had with people was your six character name, um, and people managed to still use that to hold conversations through it. Um, mm-hmm. watching people do this and it's like how are you squeezing something through that tiny channel mm-hmm. and then there were the people who there were the um the the kids um websites where they're trying really hard to not let the kids interact with each other and so they do it by changing the world by laying things down on the ground to spell things and so right. they can actually right. send a phone number across one of my favorite examples of this is um i i noticed uh you know you get a list of all the um, Wi-Fi networks, and I noticed that mm. some people were kind of like playing the dozens uh, over their Wi-Fi names. They kept changing them mm-hmm. and, and having like a, a calling names battle mm. just through the the Wi-Fi list. Right, and they didn't so- they didn't know each other, and they didn't know where each other were, um, but they were just engaging with with by their names. Cool. Well, I would imagine develop. You know, coders do that a lot, right, Kev? I would imagine you know they sort of hide little conversations yeah. and snippets of code and stuff going back and forth. So some, some maybe example, I mean, you, yeah you have yeah you 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 sometimes have like you know jokes in variable names things like that, but more usually it's in it's in in comments and things. But yeah, comments, right. yeah you you will you will find you will sometimes find. Um, the, Variable name is called like if if God you know God knows what this is doing, um, or the variable I have to pass to make Fred's stupid function work and stuff like that. Right, that's the kind of stuff I was thinking about. Right, naming things along the lines of what's annoying or what. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So, Kia, do you do ongoing research of any kind? I mean, what's your in- what What are you most interested in right now? Um, I I mean. I do a lot of um, kind of informal experiments, and then I, whenever I teach the class, I have my students doing field experiments, which is kind of distributed research. Um, but I'm not formally, a, you know, a researcher. Um, I'm I'm sort of informally and playfully a researcher. And right now, I I'm mostly working on this book uh, that's about um, independent learning and and how people learn outside of school. Um, and how did your relational dynamics lead you to this, or did it? It didn't really. I just I was because I dropped out and also teach in the grad program. Um, I just had a million conversations with people where they were like, "I'm thinking about going back to school. What do you think?" And I would always mostly tell them not to because what they when I asked them why they wanted to go, it was clear that they just wanted to learn and that it wasn't about a degree or you know, career advancement. It might have been about changing careers, but the part they were excited about was learning. And I would say, well, you know, you don't have to have school to do that. In fact, it's kind of a waste to go to school for that. Um, And 
we would end these conversations. I would give them a few suggestions for how to get started. But for a lot of people, the idea of learning outside of school is kind of daunting and scary and they don't know where to start. And I kept wanting to have like a manual to hand people and there isn't one. So I decided to write it. Mm-hmm. Cool. How's that going? It's hard to write a book. It's very hard to write a book. It's going pretty well. Um, the first, you know, third of the work was just interviewing people, strangers, um, mostly. And I ended up interviewing about 80 people, um, which was, I had no idea it was going to be that many when I started. Um, so it's it's like kind of actual, you know, qualitative data at this point. Um and I'm editing the interviews now and sort of writing a kind of overview of what I found from the interviews and trying really hard to finish the book because it was funded by Kickstarter and it's already late. Yeah, you're not the first person I've heard that from about the Kickstarter funded. Now I have to deliver something. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I will deliver something, but I just had no idea that the project would expand the way that it has. So, Has there ever been a project that didn't expand? I just hmm. wonder, like, is it the nature the his- of everything? The all history of projects in yeah. since the beginning of time? No. I don't know. So there's no connection, just you were interested because people will talk to you. I mean, I would get asked about law school. Mm-hmm. I have a right. law degree. Right. And I'm, right. A, I'm a very experienced, let me convince you not to go to law school person. Right. I mean, I'm one of those people that, like, if, if anyone talks to me for five minutes, they end up telling me their deepest, darkest secrets. So, um, mm, cool. That, that's very useful you know? in an ethnographer, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. handy. Or spy. Right, right. Except I have no poker face, so I would be a very bad spy. Yeah, yeah maybe it's not necessarily useful in an ethnographer. Maybe become an ethnographer because you have the tendency. Chicken and egg. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. I'm just wondering. No, so, I think. I think it's true. I mean, I'm also a fiction writer and there's a lot of, it's weird because I really like engaging with people, but I also have a kind of, like, I like being an outsider and watching what's happening. And do you feel like you watch your own interactions with people? Did this kind of come from your own observations? Do you spend a ton of time online? Uh, I do spend a ton of time online and, um, and I do pay attention to my own interactions both you know with people in person and online and one of the things that happens in my class at a certain point is usually half the students are like ah this is making me too self-conscious I want to stop reading this stuff um and I I've never really felt um hampered by thinking about it but you know it's sometimes you can drive yourself crazy thinking too hard about things and the three of us cannot relate to that at all. <laughs> <laughs> Just thought I would... <laughs> Kevin, don't choke. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's too good. So, uh, why do you spend the amount of time online that you do? Uh, you know, I, I, I just kind of live there. I mean, um, like probably most people who are listening. Why do you think? Um, that's a good, that's kind of an existential question. I don't know. Why do you, do you spend a lot of time online? I do now, yeah. Yeah, why? Well, I mean, I have my own ideas about me. I'm kind of interested about you. I mean, I, I came so to close the web. To you. 
When <laughs> I first used the internet in 1994, uh, I immediately felt it was where movies would go. Mm-hmm. And I worked in Hollywood, and I was pretty excited the idea that five guys wouldn't have control over everything they got to get out. Yeah, mm. and I very quickly got to have access to people I could talk to that it, I wasn't geographically near. I was interested in feminist legal theory, and I was in a law school where there was one feminist professor, and we couldn't really spend that much time on it. So, in order for me to have conversations, I wanted to have it and have it around me who knew that stuff. So, all of a sudden, I could ask questions. This is quite a long time ago, and then I. I got involved in this business, like, early. But for me, it was an interest in storytelling, and, and I thought movies. But then the notion of community showed me that people really were doing stuff for each other, mm-hmm. including live, the live performance. I perform a lot live. Right. Um, so for me, I have relationships with people that I like to continue, and I would like to learn, and I'm someone who likes an enormous amount of mental stimulation, I think. Yeah. Um, and social contact. And right. probably I've come to understand how a certain amount of um, emotional anxiety. Probably. I mean, I was someone who would have been considered socially uh, challenged a little bit growing up because I was nerdy. And I think that's part of why I can teach the stuff that I teach because I had to learn it. Right. You know, I think when something comes quite naturally to you, it can be very hard to know that you know how to do it. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean not to skirt the issue, but that's what I found with um, the "Don't Go Back to School" book and with the conversations I was having. Is I know how to learn on my own, and it became very hard to articulate. And when I started interviewing people, you know, it, it a lot of the conversations circled around a lot before we found concrete things because everybody was like, "I don't know, I just do it." Um, but it was great to to kind of go through the process with people of of thinking more slowly about what they're doing and, and charting it out. Yeah, they say, I, there's some, you know, Asian saying that the worst person to learn from is the expert, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, in listening to you guys talk about that, I was thinking, okay, so what got me online? I'm a natural born tumbler. Mm-hmm. Like, I breathe, like the third word out of my mouth is to tumble. And so to me, I think back when I got online and it was like, oh my God, all these different types of people. And I've always been an outsider or I fit into lots of groups, you know, fit everywhere or nowhere. Mm -hmm. So to me, my attraction to, you know, IRC, I guess was the first thing in the internet was like, oh my God, connecting all these interesting thoughts, ideas, people, the same thing Heather was saying, you know, intellectually curious, but also the sort of like... I didn't get attracted to the internet when it was HTML, just HTML links. I mean, inf- it, just getting online for information, you know, wasn't as interesting to me, though I did it and it was like, wow, because it's simpler, easier, and quicker, like zines and all that stuff that we first did. But when it started to be about connecting with people is when I had this, I remember this leap. Deb, it was always, always about connecting. There's, there's yeah. nothing that's ever not been about connecting with it, people. It, well, you, you know that I agree with that, but I'm saying when, when the was focus easier. became more around, around, when it became even easier to do that, it became really interesting to me. Online, as opposed to sort of, you know, I used to like meet people who were at zines and then we'd get together and have coffee and all that, you know. But th- that to me was a sort of, it's like, oh my God. And I think also just you know, I go back to the growing up Jewish in a community, you sort of are a connector. And so to me, being able to do that across the globe was just like rocking. Think about it. Yeah, and I think, I think there's something about people who also, I don't know if you guys think about this, Kevin, also. Um, my experience with getting online and being social 
is probably different than people who get online to just find people just like themselves. So, so, and this would be interesting to, for, to ask you, Keo, is like my, my explicit um, sort of experience is always, always about meeting different types of people, and yet there are people who get online just for homophily, you know, just to meet people just like themselves, to connect with people just like themselves, for sure, I did that. But it's interesting. I think there's different types of people who get online to meet others or feel connected, right? Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that there's a type of person like you or like me or like probably a lot of people um, who are paradoxically like us who, um, for whom feeling connected is also feeling connected to the larger world, fe- feeling connected to people mm-hmm. and places and ideas that are new and novel and you know like to me I really like it when I get to meet somebody that I know from the internet in person it's the best Um, it's really great and I still don't have a good word for that and and you know what Keo I think the thing you're you're talking about is a flies 180 degrees in the face of Sherry Turkle's new book we haven't had a chance to get her on yet so I I think it's only fair that we have her on but her uh, her recent work seems to assume that you have no interest in meeting the people that you're talking to online. Right, exactly. And I, you know, in the I, if, I, if I know you online and I meet you in person, I will hug you. Yeah. Yes. Like, well, right well, off Also, the you giggle. You meet the people that you've been talking to online and you start giggling because you haven't been able to do that. God, right. I, I this is remembering when, before I got online, I used to work when I worked in New Lines a long time ago in L.A. There was a guy I used to have to be on the phone with who was in the office in New York and we just a phone relationship work-wise. And I remember going to the office at some point in New York, meeting the guy, and I had a whole, like, character in my head I'd made up, what he would look like, who he was. The guy was a good... I thought he was, like, younger than me. Like, you know, maybe young, 19 or young teenager. He was 80 or something. It was crazy. Wow. It blew my mind that I'd come up with this whole idea about him I'd made up that was utterly untrue. On the internet, no one knows you're 80. It was just the phone. <laughs> it was just phone on the phone. Yeah. I'm right? kidding. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's right. so, I mean, I wonder how, I mean, now I think people are online because you kind of have to be. I mean, it's where work is. That's where many people's jobs are. Um, instead of watching television or listening to the radio, it's the thing you're doing often in the background to sort of occupy and kind of mentally sedate yourself a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of like having a drink all day long for your brain. <laughs> uh, but this relational stuff, I mean, that's what I'm most interested in. Mm-hmm. Have you seen any company or do you not look at comp- watch companies? Um, I, you know, I do. I have to admit, because I have a, an infant, like I'm, I'm a little out of a lot of loops um, in the past year. Um, so I don't. I don't have like a ton of examples on my fingertips. Um, one of the things that I was actually really interested in was chat roulette um, a couple mm. of years ago. I spent a lot of time on chat roulette talking to strangers, uh, avoiding penises. Um, I was going to say, how'd that go? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was really like the first few weeks. And um, I talked to a, a teenage girls wouldn't talk to me, but teenage boys were like, who are you? What are you doing here? Um, and I would have conversations with them and um, we, Bree and I were, were talking on it together and um, met uh, a Russian programmer who had just spent an 11 hour shift with, um, 
on chat roulette with a guy in India who was doing customer service chat. Um, and they just left it on for their whole shift because it made them feel good and they were really isolated. And I, you know, I thought that was amazing. Hmm. We had so, someone, we had someone on, on the show once who was talking about guys who will, you know, in virtual offices who will just kind of leave the, you know, con call open all day. Yeah. Even when they're not talking to each other. I don't remember who brought the example up. Um, my equivalent to that chat roulette thing was when ICQ came out. It was like the non-visual chat okay. roulette. Yeah. Because you could just sort of start talking with someone anywhere around the globe. Right. And it was well, weird. Well, the, the IRC channels were that too. That was that was yeah. you know, when we had Lucas on last week, I said the IRC channel is X because I knew she was at Mozilla and that's they live in IRC channels all day. Mm. Um, and, there's, and there's a sort of tech culture of that where you go and, you know, People come and go from the IRC channel, and that's where your conversation continues. Um, and and you know that has been in some cases replaced with these more you know audio links, but somehow that's that's both less and more distracting because you can get the little phallic noises that that David was talking about earlier um, through the audio link, but you can also get weird other people's atmosphere and background noise and, and children and things coming through too, which which can be good but can be weird. I always used to want to make uh, some way of just connecting randomly with somebody and listening to the ambient noise around their desk, um, you know, just like right. as a as a very sort of passive kind of eavesdropping form of being connected with the world. Well, you get you get a bit of that because of the way that the the feedback suppression works. You don't hear your own atmos coming through the channel. Mm-hmm. So when the, the you know when the clock rings here, you get to hear the clock ringing, or when my phone makes a little buzzing noise, you get to hear that, but I don't get to hear it. Or when mm-hmm. you, or, or when you're breathing too close to the mic, you can't tell you're doing it. Right? Am I doing it now? Also, if you're <laughs> typing, uh, no, you may David. not know that you're typing, but we've all learned from doing this show <laughs> that it's a thing. Everybody else is you're typing. Just thought who's on the keyboard. Right. We also know how, how passionately we type by how but it, But it also <laughs> becomes part of how, I mean, some yeah. people say, well, I'll learn. Like, I, in order for me to have a conversation with you, I have to be taking notes in the conversation. That's how I'm going to process things. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, the other thing is, isn't, you know, part of the sort of the Instagram impulse is the, here's a little piece of my environment that I'm sending to you. Mm-hmm. They're the people, they're, there's the, look, I just saw this thing. Here's, here's, a, here's, a, here's a note from my context that yeah here's where i'm calling from right so what do you find for with people if, if you're not aware why you're online why are the people you're you know you're studying or that you're teaching online a lot all the time well they're younger and they really live there but i mean i it's not that i don't have an answer for why i'm online i you know i think um as you were saying to Deb earlier, you know, it's always been about communication. And so the first way I was online was just email. And it kind of blew my mind to be able to have such quick, uh, long letters back and forth with people. And then I got on Gopher. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Gopher, yep. And it was like, oh, my God, you know. And it really felt like you were kind of tunneling down into all kinds of crazy places and sources of information and and you there was that way that you had to like when you're playing zork and you had to make a map to get back to things um so that was just just the way that it opened up the world was really exciting and i think that's in a way still the same reason that i'm here 
I literally remember where I was sitting in college when I went to the engineering school with a geek boyfriend at the time who told me, oh, yeah, you can talk to your friends in Europe who are on a right. semester abroad through this terminal with a blinking screen. I'm like, right. what? Right. And typing, and of course, we had to set up a time to meet there. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and getting an instant response back in IRC and going, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Like, I literally remember that. It was, like, right. exciting. Right. What I don't remember is when I stopped writing emails that were like letters. Yeah. That happened at some point, but I, I'm not sure when. When when you started blogging? Did you start a blog? Nope. Nope. Hmm. Well, there's, there's a, I mean, the thing Good is, question. there's a generational thing here as well, because, you know, email was this thing before it became shit. You know, the, the the origins of email, and there's there's, sort of, there's this sort of nostalgia for mailing lists among sort of the the older people are going types. back to them now. But what, mm-hmm. you know, there's 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 mailing lists I'm on with with like lots of very old early internet people whose worldview is that mailing lists of how you do these things and what mm-hmm. are these, why are you using these other tools? Mailing lists are wonderful, um, and you know, a well tumbled mailing list is a wonderful thing, but. Most people's experience of email now is it's this messy thing full of crap that, that sort of is scraped up from the dregs of the world and you spend half your time sort of, you know, wondering where that came from. Um, and I've noticed that, you know, one of the, you know, one of the patterns is, is making alternative inboxes or making alternative cues of, for, for attention. Um, and the, you know, Facebook is, is the sort of the... Um, approved queue for retention people only get to, to send you messages there if you've said yes to them already or or they're asking you to, to you to say yes to them but also even with the even with instagram or draw something or any of these other little things that have, that have done well they, they create their own little inbox that's that's full of comfort that's full of something else mm-hmm. so and they haven't yet got you know spammed to death and ruined by people trying to sort of exploit them as side channels so right. your your Instagram inbox is this little sort of f- photographs of context from people that you're interested in. You draw right. something one is doodles from your friends, and then then they're not bridging out. They're not Instagram doesn't go into your email inbox. It it doesn't sit there with everything else. Well, you, that, you go there I, for something. That's something sort different. of the shift in general now. I mean, Keo, what? So when you're teaching, what do you have people read? Um, you know, we start out reading uh, things that are that I refer to as kind of lyrical about why people are interested in other people. And so some of that is like Roland Barthes uh, actually writing about photography in a book called Camera Lucida. Hmm. And we read uh, Georg Simmel, who's an early sociologist who writes uh, about, there's an essay about strangers and there's an essay about um, what it, the experience of the city full of strangers and how that's kind of enervating. Mm-hmm. And um, I know me. Yeah, and uh, and then uh, we read Irving Goffman, who's you know classic stage, sociology. Front stage. Yeah, that's yeah. like the reference I get all the time for my work. Yeah, um, that makes sense. And there's a lot of there's a bunch of uh, really useful urban studies stuff. We we read um, uh, Jane Jacobs. I was going to say you must do Jane Jacobs. Yep, we do Jane Jacobs. Uh, there's there's William H. White's um, The Social mm-hmm. Life of Small Urban Spaces, yep. uh, which is a, f- there's a, it's a book, but there's a fabulous, hilarious documentary, and he has this great patrician sort of voice that doesn't exist anymore um, narrating it. 
Um, and then we read some, some psychology and neuroscience about social perception. And then I have them do, uh, at the end, two things that are a kind of social perception in action. So one is we read a fabulous book called The Big Con uh, that was written in the 40s. And it's by a linguist who was studying criminal uh, subculture language mm -hmm. and got all these That's people to tell him stories about cons. Um, and then we play a game of werewolf. Uh, which is of the course. ultimate test of social perception. So, to do. I'm surprised there's no Levi Strauss in there. Hmm. Yeah, I, you know, they're technology students. I can only go so far. <laughs> <laughs> you gave them the good ones. Yeah. I mean, I, I, my, if Kevin's drinking word is phatic, mine has always been third place. So, you know, <laughs> Oldenburg stuff is always. Yeah. I want to see that white documentary. Okay, we we need to have your syllabus up on the blog post related <laughs> well, to. Well, I mean, your, I'm glad yeah. you said it. I'm hoping maybe uh, Michael uh, Dark Hartfeld's often doing notes for us. We'll get that because we're gonna. We'd like to start getting a list of books up and put up a little bookstore There's on Simple Vision because we have so many references and so many people who've guessed in the show have books, including yours. Yeah. You will. You will have this done. Someday. In terms of this class. Um, Alexis Madrigal at The Atlantic, mm. who I know you guys know, um, for a while was actually publishing kind of narrative versions of syllabi, and there's a, there's one mm. of those up uh, for yes. creative studies. Oh, oh there, yeah. I think I've seen it. That's right. I'm going to go find that. I think I have that somewhere. That's great. Let's make a note of that. I loved those posts when he was doing that. <laughs> I know. It was, I wanted more of them, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because I didn't have this language, like the urban Goffman language. I was just doing it. And then I was told, oh, no, for these people to get that you're actually doing something, you have to give them all this analysis and academic language to prove that, to you, name just, it. that you just did this thing. That, right. Uh, you have to name it. That otherwise, <laughs> they don't think you did because it just seemed like you just sat down at a conference and talked to people. <laughs> That's our problem with explaining Tomalink. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess yes. now that I have that language. What I would say, well, particularly my performance right style is I'm taking, I'm doing backstage and the front stage a lot. So I'm usually trying to make very intimate feeling space in spaces where people weren't intimate uh, and to make that scale it as much as I can, to open as, to as many people so that I'm kind of sculpting the social space that feels different to be there in order to create conditions where I'm going to get people to engage differently. I'm going to get different stuff out of them. I'm going to get them to behave differently which will in turn allow other people to behave differently. Cause yeah, it's been I, mean, I saw the talk that you did, and I, I, I would love to be there in person sometime because, you know, it's a really different experience than watching it. Oh, yeah, I would, you will, because a lot of it's felt. I would love to come. I mean, I'd love to come do a, a talk at, a, at ITP. I mean, I'd be, it sounds yeah. like stuff you're doing is so interesting to me, but also you'll feel when I teach it, it's one of the reasons why people have asked me to do classes online and I want to because I obviously can only do me so, so many things in person but especially if I'm teaching someone I'm reading them so heavily mm -hmm. what yeah. they're doing what their face right. is doing what their body's doing right. what they're afraid of and I'm tr creating conditions so that they're not afraid essentially yeah. so they can get the feeling of what it is to do something and it's yeah. really interesting because I'm a pretty nerdy person to go from this sort of thinking about stuff to not to feeling it yeah. Because once you think about it, it's, it makes it much harder to do some of this stuff. I'm basically trying to take the obstacles out of the way so that what I, I find to be a pretty natural tendency in most people mm -hmm. uh, can, can operate. I think we, we kind of get in our own ways in terms of being heard a lot of the time. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, I mean, I just did a workshop uh, with a bunch of UX people who are great, but all of them who had such different personalities – 
in about 11 unique ways, did not think that who they were was going to be enough. It was pretty clear <laughs> that wow. they were all sort of compensating for a presumption that the way they talked or who they, their, what their, their natural gifts were, some were naturally funny, one was a physical like acrobat and trained all this stuff. It wouldn't, it wouldn't work. Uh, and I don't know, that's why I do like to make fun of whatever traditional speaking and PowerPoint and stuff, because a lot of this stuff is... I guess I'm interested, since you're working with students who are trying, I mean, I would imagine a lot of students you're teaching are still trying to make projects that will help people engage socially. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And there seems to be a desire to turn to the, the technology first, although I'm very curious about the listserv thing, which is a new, and I, I like it because it's going back to something simpler. Uh, you know, a desire to say, well, first, um, I mean, you hear this all, all the time out here. Everyone's going to have a phone, and you'll walk around, you'll input this thing to your phone. It will show you who else in the room is like you. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, <laughs> this, this presumption that somehow you can't do some of this stuff, which, of course, you as a human being can do much better than your machine, much faster. Right. right. Do you see that in, in your students or not, like a desire to think the machine's going to solve it faster for us? Yeah, I mean, and that's sort of what I'm working against, and I, I – I get a lot of um, new companies wanting to talk to me about their work and get my advice on how they're trying to connect people. And almost always, you know, the the advice is that that people don't necessarily need technology in the situations that they're trying to put technology into. They need they need a host. Yeah, I mean, I think so. And hopefully the skills. So I'm trying to teach them to more people because I think right. a lot more people. Right. It, and, and a lot of it is in people naturally. Yeah. Not always. A lot of it's undoing yeah. <laughs> stuff they've learned. Right. Most of the time. I mean, you took mm -hmm. Kevin wasn't the very first time I did this. And um, I had one guy who knows Goffman upside down and backwards. I mean, he knows mm -hmm. a ton of this stuff, a drama therapy. So it was pretty amazing to have someone who had such deep academic and intellectual reference for this stuff. Because having him watch not only what himself, but watch collectively what I was doing with everyone, mm -hmm. I mean, it was lovely to feel appreciated, but I could feel like, wow, I've got to really undo all of that to help you feel everybody <laughs> mm -hmm. so you can do this thing and not just see it happen. Right. To, uh, to undo his, like, well, hyper-awareness. Because the act of doing... Being present. Makes it much harder to, to have the doing. It's very hard to, to happen if you're busy watching it all. I mean, it's a yeah. weird mix of watching while doing, I guess. That well, I'm it's like it's a participant observer problem. Yes. In it, a way. It's, it's, Except, the it's the naming thing that, that David's <coughs> grumbling what about. What is David it, saying? He's, he's saying naming the ineffable is, 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 is the problem. I think that, that is part it, of this. It say is, more it about is, that. Then, and can David jump in there if, you, if we're not understanding it right? What do you think he means, Kevin, around naming the ineffable other than Voldemort? <laughs> no, it's it's the, the thing is, you know, once you know, it's like, oh, I've I've learned the word fatic. I will now use that rather than actually doing it. Um, right. You know, it's 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 that it's that sort of sense of aha, I've got a little box to label this and put this in now. I can. I or can. also, if you're doing some, I mean, one of the odd things are Keo's our guest. I'm really very conscious that we're talking a tremendous amount the three of us. It's very lovely, Kevin, to get to hear you. But Keo, uh, even through a microphone, is very clear to me that you are very practiced at uh, holding space for people, which is a very touchy-feely social worker-y kind of phrase or actor <laughs> phrase. But it's a, it's not a, it's hard because a lot of the language for this stuff is really such dreck, but it's what, we ha what I have. <laughs> so that's a really significant thing 
it, it lets people talk in a different way, lets the tone go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. It's an act, but because it's silent or because it can seem so matter of fact, people think you didn't do anything. Or she just sat there. Right. But there's a way of sitting there that's completely different, right? I mean, if you mm-hmm. have somebody in a waiting room who's waiting uh, at a hospital for someone to have cardiac surgery, Ten different people can go in there one-on-one and sit in the room differently and see what will happen to the person waiting for the person in surgery. They'll behave completely differently. Mm-hmm. And for me, in terms of the performance art piece of what I'm interested in is that, is playing with that. And then if there's a lot more people, how do you make everybody go in a certain direction? Right, right. Well, I mean, this is really, like, simplistic, but in that William H. White documentary, one of the things that he talks about and that he names is the fact that you know, people will talk to each other when there's something to talk about, and he calls it triangulation. Um, and it's it's just this beautiful, simple thing that if you if you want to draw people uh, to connect, you give them some little piecemeal anything that they cake. can start I like a cake. conversation over. Yeah, I mean, and so some people walk around with implements of triangulation like fantastic shoes or like a great hat that you can just say a conversation great piece hat, and or then social objects right 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 yeah. right yeah it's it's true and captain david is talking about okay i started having talking about my work more than being in the work being in my process making the work and it was making it a lot less pleasurable and it was now i'm gonna have to make the naming what he's calling naming the main thing and then the actual feeling experiential piece secondary now, part of what I think is so interesting about this, and I know that it's an, it's an issue for Captain David, uh, a.k.a. Tony Comstock, is a filmmaker uh, because, because it's become financially a problem, the model for filmmaking that he that he's, was used to, is that part of the new model of how to make a living, and I think Esther Dyson's the first person I saw sort of talk about this in public, is to become a public speaker of naming about stuff. Right mm. is is okay. You do a thing as a musician or as a thinker. You write a book, but that's sort of the marketing for people to get you to come in there and ex- be more more expository. Mm-hmm. And and if that's the case, that that the teaching about is the um, is the income, uh, then it can be it can. I don't know. I mean, I sorry. I know we got we've got to wrap up soon here, but I think. Um, what does that mean about how self-conscious we become? I mean, I, I any thoughts on that, Kia? I, I'm sorry. I slightly lost track of the question. So it was a bit rambly and messy. Okay. <laughs> so if it's true, like in David's case, he makes made these films, and his films were uh, had a lot of sexual content in them, and they were very meaningful films about intimacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think they were controversial. For whatever reason, he was asked to talk about them often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then he becomes known as a guy who talks about Right. He's on the process of making what it is to feel and do and make. You know, that's it's interesting. Um, my publisher um, of my, my novel that came out in the summer said, you know, the book industry is sort of collapsing. It's not that books are going to go away, but it's that books are not going to be the way writers make money anymore. It, you know, talking about books and about ideas and being paid to get to be present and and be in a room with people is how writers are going to make money um and i i don't know if that's true but i i think it's it's a more positive way to think about 
what it means to to make films and talk about them. Um, and I I understand it's different with books. I think because your your presence is always uh, much more kind of detached as a writer. Well, the, but both I mean both books and films are sort of highly condensed um, mm-hmm. experiences. Um, you can it takes a year to write a book and it takes a day to read it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the film is even more condensed. I suppose it takes a year to make a film and two hours to watch it. Right. Um, but it's that you know, that sort of distillation is 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 part of the, part of the value of them. So mm-hmm. to then say, okay, then the actual value is to get the author to talk about what they were thinking when they wrote paragraph six, you know. Mm-hmm. And by this point, it's a year later, the, the book's been published, they, they were sick of the damn thing after going through the galley stages, and they really want to talk about something else. And that, that's mm-hmm. a, you know, there's a structural problem with that model. Right. Well, I think what, what my publisher, Richard Nash, was talking about was the idea that um, people want more of you uh, if they like yes. your book or your movie, they want to connect with you. They want to be in the room with you. Um, and that they may be willing to pay for that as much as they're willing to pay right. for the book. So, Have, have you been following um, Amanda Palmer's Kickstarter? Um, I, I saw that it started, but I haven't looked at what's happening. What's well, happening? Well, she, she, you know, she, she may got some huge record amount of money, like half a million dollars in, um, you know, a day or something from, from people pledging this. And it's so, um, but part of, but, you know, part of the things she's, she's putting as rewards for, for large donations are, I will turn up at your house and, and have a party with you. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. And I've seen other people who are less famous and less uh, flamboyant do things like that too, that, that like you can spend time with me. Right. Uh, yeah. And I, I mean, I think people want that and it's, it all comes back to the fact that actually we, you know 95% of us really want to connect and that that's what makes us feel human and rooted and uh and real right I'm listening to you guys I'm wrestling with the fact that you know this past year I sort of took a bit of a sabbatical from work but I made my living what little there was of it um with a word that I wrestle with because I like to be creating and doing and I was a pundit. I'm going off this weekend to give a corporate speech where I will get paid to talk about stuff. And I think it's more of a more jarring in the in the more artistic world, be it novel, whatever. But this has been going on in the business world and I would argue even in the book world, but not the I think the the pendulum has shifted, right? Um that people get paid to show up and talk and, and share their insights or their ideas. And I hate and, – and the balance is how, how, how much are you an idea person versus how much you are a creator. And I personally, internally, you know, believe much more strongly in creating, doing, and action. So it's, it's been a very uncomfortable sort of cloak to wear this past year because it's like – just talking about shit, but you haven't done anything. Like, what are you talking mm. about? <laughs> you know? Well, uh, and so it's, 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 it, you have to have that balance. And for me personally, I go back, I, I can go back and forth. I can do and create a really interesting project and then feel really excited to talk about it and share and distill how I did it and, and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but too much of just the jabbering about something makes me feel very inauthentic and unreal and sort of fake. Mm-hmm. So I relate to sort of, I think, I can only imagine if you're a novelist or a filmmaker, that feels even odder. 
right. for want of a better word. Although I think one of the loneliest things about being a writer is that you do yeah. it all in a room and then you put it out in the world and, and that's that's it. And so for me, um, actually connecting with readers, like I love giving readings because people mm-hmm. want to talk about the book afterwards and you get feedback and even people saying that they hate it is more more engaged than just sitting there um so and it may be different because well, writing is so concretely lonely i but think I it's the talks i think connecting with people is the best part about it it's why i hate yeah. doing keynotes because you right. give the talk and you walk off the stage like, but i and, love doing keynotes but i do them all as conversations mm-hmm. <laughs> Right, but there's usually a light goes off and the people don't get to run up to you right afterwards. You know what I'm saying? I've done the keynotes, but I'm just saying it's not the same as people getting to be, you know, more intimate setting. I guess uh, I'm just a fan of trying, well, because I like the making things intimate that didn't seem like they were going to be. Um, We're kind of coming to the close of our our time here. I think uh, jabbering, you know, I think the thing I want to say about it that is important to me that's going on when you're talking to each other if you're doing it, uh, I think we're doing it sometimes better than others, is the presence of being with each other, which sounds maybe trite, but Mm-mm. I think that's the doing of even when there's talking, Captain David, uh, in how you're being together. If you are really being together and having two exchanges, a way kind of performance, a way of being, a way of having a real, you can be emotionally really engaged and kind of in it. And then you can get some of the immersive quality of the, of the, of the making and it's a, it's a, it can be its own form of making mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. if you engage it that way and I think it feels at least from my experience given that that's a lot of what I do and a lot of how I write it can, it can work that's a really nice way of saying it actually yeah, it's the th- reason. I mean, I don't know. I just did an ignite a couple of weeks ago, and I don't know when it's going to be out. Where I basically made fun of slides. Right? It's called <laughs> um, it's unpresenting ignite. No one cares about your fucking slides. And <laughs> essentially, I do the first six, you know, first two minutes of it in the audience with a microphone with a few slides on the stage, just to make the point that you know, if mm-hmm. you're gonna have slides, you don't have to be there. Uh, the, the reason you're, you do anything live with other people, I believe, uh, Keo, is, is the being part. Yeah. So I don't know how we get that into the machines. Um, you know, I don't have the answer to that. And I teach the strangers class not as a way of mm. giving people answers. It's a way of giving people questions. We have to and the, and that out. is the yeah. question. And, and I think we're going to we're gonna have to wrap the show on, on the profundity of that um thanks so much for uh joining us i think it would be really fun when, it, when we do um an analysis and we're going to try and occasionally go through uh, some sites and some services and do a little tumble analysis it would be fun to get your participation on that on the presence elements if there are any or could yeah. be yeah could be so your book is your kickstarter project is called don't go back to school mm-hmm. if someone didn't jump in on the kickstarters the way they can order it now um, there's a, you can go to my website and uh, give me your email address and I will email you when it's ready to be bought. You're keostark.com? Yeah, that's right. K-I-O-S-T-A-R-K.com. Your parents right. were from Mars or? <laughs> <laughs> um, they were just kind of hippies. I, the name is Japanese, but um, I'm not. Although sometimes I lie and say I am just for fun. Yeah. How long can you hold, pull that off for? <laughs> Uh, you know, like on an airplane, uh, I have a poker face. So for the length of any flight, uh, other than that, like two seconds. Okay. 
thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for Captain David Ryan, Tony Comstock for your participation today, and all kinds of people, Tom Vanderwall. I don't know Kate's here, but thanks for joining us. You're new to me, as is Night Owl and, and Behaven, oh, Barbara, I think, Haven, and lots of new people to join us. If you want to uh, join us live, we're at this point, Thursdays, 6 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. That time's probably going to shift earlier in the week in a different time. We don't know just yet when, but for now, that's when it is. Uh, we do a little pre and post shows. If you, if you have time, Kia, we'll talk a little bit more with everybody. And we have Linda Stone coming up. We're not sure exactly when. June-ish, it looks like. And probably Nil for Merchants and other dates that aren't completely nailed down and other amazing people. Anything you want to let people know about, Kia, besides your, your URL? Um... Just the uh, that's the stranger syllabus is accessible um, if people are interested in that stuff. So uh, it's if you search stranger studies, you'll get it. Okay, stranger studies. Mm -hmm. Deb, any, you're going to where are you going to speak? Greece. I'm off to Greece. Wow! Always, Save know, their I'm economy always. in one talk. Exactly. That's what I'm talking about. I'm being invited over there. <laughs> I'm talking about some of the stuff we usually talk about: collaboration, tumbling, and big data. Go figure. Hey, nothing makes you more conscious of people than data. Exactly. And Kevin, any fun things to let people know about? Um, I'm off to Seattle, um, beginning of next week for um, PII, Privacy Information. Oh God, what's the third one? Um, which is a conference about personal data and those things, and I'm actually talking about oh. with big data comes um, big responsibility. Ooh, I like it. Awesome. I was spo I was, so was going to be week. there if I wasn't going to Greece. And actually, I do have something to plug, because people who are up in Montreal, I'm going to be in Montreal in July at Startup Festival. So if you're listening and you're from Montreal, it looks like an awesome lineup. Fantastic. I am going to be uh, telling a story at Porchlight here in San Francisco on the 21st. Oh, I can't believe I'm going to miss it. And I, and I surrender. I think there's one of the biggest lady bounty hunters in the country is going to be telling a story, too. Uh, I am also doing three, I'm presenting, tumbling workshops uh, coming up. I've got one in Toronto on the 21st of June. One in San Francisco in, in September and one in Portland in October. You can find out about those at presenting.com. And if you want to bring me to your conference or company, you can. And I'll have more shows coming up, too, in the future. Thanks, everybody, very much for being here. Thanks for being here, Keo. And we'll see you guys uh, next week. Good night. <laughs>